Actually, I'd be happy to read all of that, but I understand that Denny was the reader in the first service, and there's no way I could ever compare to that. <laughs> but starting uh, chapter 26, starting in verse 19, this is Paul. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Fest said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for, he, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, would to I would to God and not only you, but also all that hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Thank you, Jay. You did great. Yeah, give Jay a hand. He did a great job. I'll tell Denny. <laughs> Got some competition coming. <laughs> That's right. All right. I um, want to talk a little bit this morning about uh, job performance evaluation. How do you know that you're doing a good job? At your job, like how do you know? We all want to, you want to impress your employer, you want to do well, but how do you know if you're doing well? Well, you can look at your job description, that's somewhat helpful. There's a list of tasks and you can look to see if you're accomplishing those tasks, but you know, there's more to your job than a list of tasks. There's job uh, performance reviews, and that can be helpful depending on who's giving the review. It can be really, really helpful. Uh, but how do you really know? Well, I think it's a good idea to really compare yourself to those who have done your job already really, really well. When I was uh, first starting out in ministry and wondering, am I doing okay at this whole pastor thing? Uh, I got around a guy. His name was Dan Gillette. Uh, Dan Gillette had been a pastor, get this, for more than 50 years. He had been in pastoral ministry for 50 plus years. He had seen it all. He had been through the fire. He knew what a pastor should do. He knew what made a good pastor a good pastor. And so I just I was, a men, I was mentored by him, met with him every week. He was so loving to pour into my life. But watching him and seeing his example helped me to know what a pastor should be and to do. So we're in the book of Acts, and here's Paul. We're nearing the book of Acts, which also means we're nearing the end of Paul's ministry and really the end of Paul's life. And what we're seeing here is a guy who has lived life on this mission of uh, being a witness. And I, I got to be honest with you, uh, this text was tough to preach. 
because here's what you have going on, all right? So think back to what was happening. You had uh, Paul get up in front of the Jews, and they wanted to kill him. So Paul stops everything, and he makes a defense in front of the Jews. Well, then he gets dragged away, and he has to make another defense in front of the Roman tribune. And then he has to go before the Jewish council, where he makes a defense for his ministry. And then he goes before Felix, where he makes a defense of his ministry. And now we have him here in Acts 25, all the setup going into Acts 26, where Paul makes a defense now before King Agrippa. And you have all of these stories, really one continuous story, but example after example of Paul standing and giving a defense. So I'm struggling this week trying to figure out how am I going to effectively handle this text. I know. I'll see what John MacArthur did. And so I got on, listened to Johnny Mac, and fortunately, uh, he said, too, this is a really hard text to preach. And I'm like, yeah, bro, isn't it? And so uh, anyway, so he did have a good point, and I think it's a valid one. The Holy Spirit wrote this the way he wrote it for a reason. So what we have is Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, repeating over and over and over again, a man who has been through the test of ministry has done it well and is standing and saying, here's my defense, here's my defense. And so what I want to do is take kind of all of these defenses and focusing primarily on 25 and 26, well, not exclusively, and say what rises to the top. And really, I found like seven different things that I could say. These are things that are repeated, these are things that are emphasized. Not going to preach all seven to you. Just going to do three this morning. We'll grab three things that I really hope you can grab a hold of. Because are we doing a good job? Are we doing okay at what God's called us to? Well, what has God called us to? Well, by way of reminder, here's Acts 1 8. And uh, let's read this together. Can we do this? Acts 1 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea. Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Good job of getting to all of Judea. I missed it. But that's our calling, is to be witnesses, to be witnesses. So here's the big question of the day, and what I want you to evaluate as we evaluate Paul. How does the manner of my life measure up to my calling? How does the manner of my life measure up to my calling? And I want to grab three things. If I am going to measure up to my calling, then this will be true. So here's truth number one I want you to grab a hold of. If I'm going to live up to the measure of my calling like Paul did, then I have to expect opposition for the gospel. I will expect opposition for the gospel. Let's look at this carefully in uh, Acts 26 and verse number 19, where we started our reading today. I do want to tie each of these to the text. So here's Acts 26, verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. By the way, that's kind of where this big question is coming from. Paul is saying, I, I, I got a calling from God. I had a heavenly vision, and I was obedient to it. Okay, there's our measure. There's our bar. How, how are we going to be obedient to our heavenly vision? Well, verse number 20, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles that they should repent turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Now look at verse 21. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Because that's what happens when you are a witness for Jesus Christ. 
you will be opposed. We see it throughout the entire book of Acts. And we have promises in God's word that this is going to happen. Paul tells Timothy later on, indeed, uh, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, church, read it with me, will be persecuted. Shouldn't be shocking to us because Jesus already said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And it does. The secular world hates Jesus. Religious world hates Jesus. What's interesting about this text is that these are Jews and these are Caesar worshipers. These are religious people. But they hate Jesus. And if you're going to be someone who stands and preaches Christ and lives as a witness of the gospel, you're going to be hated. You're going to be opposed. Because listen, church, this is just true. Gospel ministry is warfare. By the way, quick word. If gospel ministry is warfare, it is warfare for the salvation of souls who need rescued. Listen to me, I'm careful about this. If gospel ministry is warfare, it is warfare for the souls of people who need rescued. That means the souls that need rescued aren't the enemy. Liberals. I mean, put whatever title you want on there. Um, people are caught up in the current culture of the day are not the enemy. They're the souls that need rescued from the enemy. The enemy is Satan, but we are at war. In fact, let me prove this to you by showing you Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the church, the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. We're at war, and we've got to put on a wartime mentality and recognize if we're going to do this, if we're going to be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will be opposed. And now we can know it, but I'm telling you, when it happens, it really stinks. And I, I've, I've been opposed. In my pastoral ministry, I've been accused of all kinds of interesting things throughout the years. Early on when I was in Elkhart, someone accused me of soiling the sanctuary because I brought cookies into the worship center. <laughs> I had soiled the sanctuary. I had a guy come in who was very angry with me. He told me, you need to burn all your sermons because the sermon I preached last was the one, kind of like I did last week, when I talked about, hey, asking Jesus into your heart is not enough. You need the whole gospel. And that was really angering to him. And, and he told me to burn all my sermons. That was a fun day, by the way. Um, I have been lied about. I've had people spread rumors. Uh, I've had accusations of uh, financial malfeasance. Uh, I've had you know, just all these kind of things that kind of come your way. And, um, and what do you do with that? 
think you got to do a couple of things. My, um, my mentor, the one I just mentioned, uh, helped me with some of these things. He was actually there through some of these. And he would say, okay, listen, first thing you do is you ask, is this accusation true? Okay, you don't believe it's true. And then talk to some other people who are with you and ask them, hey, is this true about me? Because here's the reality. If, uh, it's one thing if one person calls you a donkey, he said, but if two people are calling you a donkey, you might want to look for a tail. <laughs> I said, hee-haw. Um, if it's not true, why does this person believe it's true? And maybe you've done something to communicate this, or maybe there's this stirring up in your heart, so you need to consider and go before the Lord and ask people and, and find where your repentance needs to happen. If not to this extent, where along the way do you need to repent? Good advice and good counsel. Then ultimately, you run to Jesus. Because even if you were guilty of these things, he will forgive you. But if you're not guilty of these things, then he will guard you and he will keep you. Here's what you can't do. You can't just say, these accusations, they're all false. And these accusations, you should never bring a charge against an elder. No, no, no. You should, because there are pastors who have extorted money. And there are pastors who have been abusive. And there are pastors who have done these things. So these accusations should not be ignored. But if I could say a caution is this. This is from Paul to Timothy where he said this. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidences of two or three witnesses. The reality is, if I was an extortioner, it would show up in my life in more than just one place. If I was abusive, it would show up in my life in more than just one place. And there are many who would come, and we've seen this in history of pastors who have recently been challenged. There are lots who would affirm the charge, but is that charge even affirmable and receive it on only the account of two or three witnesses humble yourself try to grow through it try to learn from it but run to jesus because he is the man he is the god who forgives and who helps in all of that but it's not fun <laughs> when you get a false accusation laid against you you're like oh stinks i hate this your stomach drops it, it, am i am i doing something wrong it shouldn't be this way is what you want to say it shouldn't be this way it shouldn't be laboring for christ and loving people and to be falsely accused it shouldn't be this way well shouldn't it isn't this the promise that we will be attacked there will be opposition that comes and so listen pastor you're not really selling this witness thing very much <laughs> If I'm going to be a witness and I'm going to be falsely accused and, I'm, and all this stuff is going to, why would I do it? And here's why. Because the mission is worth it. Because the people you get to impact for the gospel are worth it. Don't take my word for it. Take the Apostle Paul. Uh, so I had my little list. Uh, my little list is really lame when you look at Paul's list. So here's Paul's list. 2 Corinthians 11, verse number 23. Uh, With countless beatings, often near death, five times, Paul said, I received at the hand of the Jews 40 lashes less one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day adrift at the sea. On frequent journeys and dangers from river, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. <laughs> yeah, but someone said something bad about me online. Well, get over it. <laughs> Paul's had a whole lot worse going to him. And you think, Paul, man, why would you keep going all your life through all of that? Well, check this out. This is what he says in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, shortly after he says this. He said this, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. The souls of people have a great value to those who are living on gospel mission. So questions as we contemplate the manner of our life. Okay, am I a good witness? Am I doing this thing right? Am I am, as I'm evaluating that? Uh, here's some questions. How much do I really value the souls of other people? Are you okay to spend and be spent for souls? Or do we value our comfort, security, safety, reputation more than we value souls of people? If I can sum it up, and I'm going to end each of these points with kind of a summary question, and here's a summary question for this. Is the manner of my life one that values souls over comfort? Am I doing a good job as a witness? Well, how would I answer that question? Maybe the second kind of truth as I look at these defenses of Paul the second one that really kind of rose to the top for me that I want to emphasize with you is this. Uh, I will strive for a blameless life through the gospel. I'll strive for a blameless life through the gospel. And one of the things that really just comes out as they're trying to make all these accusations stick against Paul is they couldn't make any of them stick. Why? Because Paul had lived a blameless life. There is power in a blameless life. In fact, let's go back to the text and see some of these things together. I want you to let your eyes fall on uh, chapter 25, we're going to just step back into 25 a second and look at verse number 7, 25 verse 7. Twenty-five verse seven says this, and when he had arrived, the Jews had who had come down from uh, Jerusalem stood around, bringing many ac many and serious charges uh, against him that they could not prove. <laughs> and what's interesting is why couldn't they prove those charges? Well, he gives a little hint back in twenty-four verse sixteen. So look at twenty-four verse sixteen, where we have this. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. I always take pains of a clear conscience toward both God and man. Okay, so a clear conscience, a blameless life. This is a concept Paul frequently teaches. In fact, he told Timothy this when he was talking about the qualifications for an elder. He laid this down. This is 1 Timothy 3, verse number 2. Therefore, an overseer or a, a pastor, an, an elder, must be above reproach. All right. Later on, in the same passage, he gives this challenge, kind of similar. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that they may, uh, uh, he may not fall into disgrace. 
Okay, so this is the idea of being blameless, not able to lay a charge against. By the way, not just for pastors. Here's Colossians chapter 4, which says this. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. That's all of us should do this. Making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Not able to lay a charge against. That's the idea. In fact, John MacArthur says this, the best courts in the world could not convict Paul. Why? Because he lived a blameless life. And how did he do that? By making sure he had a clear conscience before God and before man. So let's talk about this a little bit. What does it mean to have a clear conscience before God and before man? Let's talk about God first. So we sin, and how do you clear your conscience before God? Can you think of a verse that would teach you how to clear your conscience before God? 1 John 1, 9, which says, if, uh, when we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, by the way, when Paul says blameless, he does not mean sinless. <laughs> he can't mean sinless because Paul was a sinner. Take a look at Romans 7 where Paul clearly says, man, there's stuff that I want to do that I don't do and stuff that I don't want to do and that's the very thing I end up doing. Paul was a sinner all of his life. He said, I am the chief of sinners. He knew he was a sinner. So blameless doesn't mean sinless. And everyone say, whew, because <laughs> we can't do it. But it does mean having a clear conscience. And to do that, we need to confess our sin to God. So confess is, uh, the word means to say the same thing. That's what the word means. So I'm going to go to God, and I'm going to say, when I did that, it was sin. It was sin against you. Please forgive me for that sin. Not excusing it or blame shifting somebody else, but owning it. I sin. Please forgive me. Okay? Clear enough? How do we get a clear conscience before God? We confess. I'm going to ask the question, you answer it. How do we get a clear conscience before God? We confess. Perfect. Okay, let's talk about man. Because not only will you sin against God, there'll be times that you sin against someone else and it affects that relationship. You've sinned against somebody else. Okay, so how do you make that right? How do we make it right with God? We, how do you think you're going to make it right with your fellow man? You're going to confess. You're going to have to confess. And you're going to have to ask for forgiveness from people. Because you're not going to be faultless. You're going to make mistakes, and you've got to own it, and you've got to ask forgiveness. So let me tell you about this past week with me. Uh, last week in a staff meeting, I, uh, I wanted to be a team player, and so when they were talking about setting up the baptistry, uh, I wanted to help. It, the reality is Scott uh, has vowed never to step into the garage because one time he did, and there was a spider in there. <laughs> And Scott hates spiders. Scott hates anything creepy and crawly. We were out there one time, Drew and he and I, and we were, I think, pulling the baptistry out again, and there was a cicada shell on the thing, and you would have thought that he saw a demon from hell. I mean, he, like, screamed, and, and like, like a little girl, really, if you're going to be honest, and uh, not really. 
But it freaked him out. He hates all the creepy crawly things. And so he does not like to go. So I'm like, dude, I'm there for you. I got your back. I'm your buddy. I'm your pastor. I'm going to help you with that baptistry. And then I came into church Sunday morning, and there was a baptistry already set up. And I'm like, I completely forgot. Man, I even told Scott on Tuesday afternoon, I'm going to go help you. And I don't know what I was doing Tuesday afternoon, but I wasn't helping Scott get that baptistry out. And so I had to go to Scott and say, dude, I am so sorry. Please forgive me. I told you I would, and I didn't. And he said, I forgive you. Of course I forgive you. I had a couple in last week who um, I just feel like in times past, I haven't been listening to them well. They're an older couple, and, and I know that there's some things that they've had opinions about that just kind of have passed on, and I really shouldn't do that. I should listen and want to learn from them and love them. And so I just bring them into the office and say, look, no confrontation on my part at all, just me saying, I need to do better at this, and I'm sorry, please forgive me. I'm not done yet. Um, this is just this week. Only this week. I, I, uh, <laughs> I'm, you know, I had some time off, and so what I do with my time off is I like to do my hobby. I love my hobby. Is I have a fun time with my hobby, and and so uh, I've been, you know, every chance I get, man, I've been either building something for my war table or painting something for my war table. And shut up, it's my hobby. You get your own hobby, and uh, I'll judge your hobby. But anyway, we're, I, I love it. And, and then Courtney had to come alongside of me and say, sometimes I kind of think you love your war table more than you love me. And like, oh, sometimes I do, and that sucks, and I shouldn't. Not love, but prefer. And it's like, oh, okay. And that's wrong for her. So I had to go to her and say, honey, you're right. And I didn't do it right away because I was mad at first. And then, <laughs> so I had to, had to go and, like, take a moment and pray and get my heart where it needed to be and then go back to her and say, you're right, honey. I, I, I need to be better at leaning into you because I, I really do love you more, and I love being with you more than I love being with my war table but I just get, you know, just get, things get off, and you have to come. And get so there's just a couple of examples of literally just this past week. And that is not even all the stuff I had to confess to God that's between God and I alone. It's a lot of work to keep a clear conscience before God and before men. It's a lot of work. And so how do, you, how do you do it? Well, let me just say this. Listen to me. The, the, the point is through the gospel, right? You see that in the words there? Through the gospel. Because the gospel is how you do it. Here's what I mean by that. There is nothing so humbling as the gospel. There is nothing so humbling as the gospel. To be saved, I had to come to God and I had to admit I am a wretched sinner and I cannot save myself. I am helpless and I am utterly sinful. So I was convicted, church, in the highest court of the universe. Already convicted. The holiest of holy knows my sin. And I had to come before the only sinless being in the universe and say, I am a wretch. Nothing exposes you like the gospel exposes you. But what did I find when I went to confess my sin before God? What I found was his forgiveness, his mercy, and his grace. And yes, nothing is as humbling as the gospel, but nothing is as joy-filling as being forgiven by God. 
And all you find when you come to the foot of the cross and you admit your sin is you find grace being poured out to you. Grace upon grace upon grace. And there's nothing better than that. And so with that filling my soul up and I'm in that regular habit of bringing my sin to God and confessing and bringing my sin to God and him forgiving me. Well, now when I go to men, it just doesn't seem like all that big of a deal. God knows already. And he's forgiven. It's already good in the throne room of heaven. And, I, and I've gone to people and sometimes they've forgiven me. And I've gone to people and sometimes they won't forgive me. I'm not responsible for what they do. I'm blameless if I have done all that I can do. And so I want to do that, and I want to lean in, and I want to have a life habit of confession and repentance and confession and repentance and to be diligent to make it right when I can make it right. I wish I didn't screw up so much. <laughs> I really do. But I do because I'm human and I'm a sinner. But I want to be right before God, and God has called me before I lay my gift down at the altar. If I there remember, my brother has something against me, leave your gift and go and make it right with your brother. So I've got to be diligent about these things. So let's just talk about this a little bit. That's what blameless means, I believe. I mean, yes, you strive for holiness, no question. You strive for holiness. You want to live a life of, of holiness. You don't excuse yourself because you have grace. No, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be, Romans 6. But when I do fail, and I will, I go to grace, and I confess, and I find his grace. So here's a couple questions for you. Are there sins in your life you need to confess to God? And I don't know. I mean, there are some people that don't feel like they can. And I don't know this morning in this room, if, if you're there, if you feel like you have to hide something from God, if you feel like you can't be honest with God, or, or maybe more likely you're not really calling sin sin, you're excusing it or saying it's somebody else's fault or whatever the case, can I just challenge you? All you're missing is grace. The humility that comes from saying, nope, it's sin, and yes, I'm that bad. All, all, this, all, that, meets, all that God uses to meet you is just his grace, his incredible grace, so don't miss out on grace. So confess your sins. Are, are there sins that you need to confess to others? And maybe you know this relationship that's not right in your life, and you know it's not right because you've not, you've not made it right, and maybe you need to be diligent to confess that to others. And then I'll just have you ponder this. How does the gospel give you the platform to do both? And I hope you can see, if you've been acquitted by God in heaven, then you're going to be okay to confess your sin to other people. So how am I doing as a witness? How am I doing in all this? Well, here's a summary question for this point, and that's this. Is the manner of my life one of regular confession and repentance to God and others? Because I don't want people to be able to lay a charge against me. Make a charge, make an accusation, do it. And hopefully I've lived in such a way where I'm blameless. third kind of truth that rose to the top as I'm just looking over uh, the text and summarizing things is this, and I love this, I will rejoice in the extent of the gospel. I will rejoice in the extent of the gospel. And uh, uh, think about this, this is crazy. Here you have the Apostle Paul 
and he's standing before a Roman king. And he's boldly preaching Jesus. And he's even saying, King, you know, this hasn't happened in a corner. You know what's going on. You know the prophets. You know what's happening here with courage and boldness. He's before a king preaching the gospel. And this was Paul, man. He would preach to the guy on the street or the king in the throne, and it didn't matter. He just wanted to preach the gospel. In fact, he says as much. Take a look at verse 20, uh, chapter 26, verses 22 and 23. 26, verses 22 and 23. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, here it is, to both small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. And Paul's like, I want to proclaim that light with Jesus. I want to tell the world both great and small. So I think about us, and I'm wondering, um, who are the great and small to us? I mean, I don't even know. I would think that if we were to identify small, we might think, okay, maybe maybe when we lead our kids to Jesus and uh, I was going through some of my files this week, and I found a video. Uh, this is uh, Landon James when he was baptized. <laughs> Look at how little that little squirt was back in the day. Uh, I don't know how well you can see those, but Landon was baptized uh, this month, 11 years ago. So super fun. Um, what happened was one day he was reading his devotions, reading his Bible. He kind of thought, you know, I want to ask Jesus to be my Savior. And we always say to the kids when they were little, okay, if, this, if you want to do that, come and ask me tomorrow because I want this to be a real conviction. I want it to be emotional. I want it to be real. I want to understand. So we did, and we explained the gospel, and he prayed and accepted Christ. And so just a few you know, months after that, I had a chance to baptize him. And uh, see what he did coming out of the pool? He's like, woohoo! You know, it's just landing. Uh, but um, it was a great day, good day. And, you know, here, I've done a lot of, like, picking on young conversions. You know, when you're four years old, you ask Jesus into your heart, and blah, blah, blah. I know I've done a lot of picking on that. And, Obviously, there's something to that. You've got to know the real gospel. But I do want to say, I, I, I don't want to ever disparage or cast doubt upon genuine salvation decisions from young kids. And I know that some of you mamas, some of you daddies, have had a chance to sit with your kids in their bedroom and share the gospel with them. And they really believed. And they really accepted Christ. And you were a testament to the gospel of those kids. And uh, there's no such thing as a small soul in heaven, okay? And your children coming to know Jesus is a blessed and wonderful thing, and your witness to them will impact eternity. And so let's rejoice. Let's rejoice in, in that. But God has written some pretty cool stories, too. Um, I just heard recently that uh, Winnie Cooper got saved. Um, if you don't know who Winnie Cooper is, and you're obviously younger than 45, uh, but uh, one of my favorite shows growing up was The Wonder Years, you know, with Kevin and Winnie and all of that, and got to admit, kind of had a crush on Winnie Cooper. She's pretty cute back in the day, and, uh, but someone told me recently that that actress, Danica McKellar, uh, recently accepted Christ as her savior. Well, that's really cool. Um, love that. And she was led to Christ by uh, Candace Cameron Bure. And they were friends. They were working on Hallmark movies and then Great American uh, Channel movies together. And, and through all of that, uh, Cameron led uh, Danica to Christ. That's awesome. I love that. 
And Danica came to know Christ when her brother Kurt Cameron led her to Jesus. And so you got three child, if you don't know, Kurt Cameron used to be Mike Seaver on Growing Pains, another show I watched growing up a lot and loved it. And so all these famous child actors really come to Jesus. And Kirk and Candace have both really made a bold stand for Christ in our day. It's really cool to see. So I got to thinking, how did Kirk come to know Jesus? And uh, so did a little research on the story. And uh, he was, you know, living the life. It was at the height of his popularity. He said, I had all the money I want, all the sin I wanted, access to it all. It was a, a devout atheist, but kind of got an eye on this cute girl that he liked and began kind of seeing her and turned out she was a Christian and her dad was very much a Christian. And so her dad was like, okay, uh, you can maybe date her, but you got to come to church with us. And so Kirk went to church with the family where some pastor stood up and preached the gospel, said, we're all sinners who can't save ourselves. But God in his love sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sin and to raise again. And if we know him, we can be forgiven of all of our sin. And Kurt was like, I can be forgiven of all my sin? That's incredible. And began thinking about it a lot and praying about it a lot and researching and asking this father all these questions along the way. Well, along the way came that he was driving his car one day and just like, I, if I died right now, I'd go to hell. And I'm not okay with that. And I got to get this right. Drove over to the dad's house and the dad led him to Christ. And I just wonder, and I didn't read enough to hear the end of the story, but I, I, I just wonder if that pastor who preached the gospel that morning ever knew that it was that gospel message that morning that won Kirk, which won Candace, which eventually won Winnie Cooper to Jesus. You just don't know. And so you just preach the gospel, and you preach the gospel, and you trust all of this, and you put your finger on this promise. Here is Isaiah 55. Check this out. This is awesome. For as the rains come and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth, out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Isn't that an awesome promise? That when the word, we're going to define what my word is in just a minute, but when that word goes out, just like rain is going to make flowers, or in this case, seed, and then we get bread, then we get to eat the bread, and all God's people said, amen, uh, right? So just as that happens for sure, the word that goes out will accomplish God's purpose. Okay, then the question is, well, what is that word and you probably heard it preached in general, the word of God. And yes, that's true. But the text is specific. In fact, I want to jump back a few verses to show you the word that we're talking about. Here's Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Check this out. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. The word is, church, the gospel. That is simply the gospel. And when you preach the gospel and you share the gospel and you live your life in a manner worthy of being a witness of the gospel, it is going to find seed and grow and the gospel will have an impact. Now listen. There is hard ground. And there is rocky ground. 
there's weedy ground. There's a lot of sowing that we do that never comes to fruition. But church, there is soft ground. There is ready ground. And let's be those who live our life as a witness. So here's a summary question. And I want to tell you in advance that I love you. Here's a summary question. Is the manner of my life such that I can rejoice over my gospel impact? Is the manner of my life such that I can rejoice over my gospel impact? And I think if you're looking at that, like when I wrote the question, do you know this? Like, like it's convicting to me first before it's convicting to you. And I'm like, what's my gospel impact? Now, I have the fortune of being a pastor, so I can point to a lot of things that I do that are gospel-oriented, but when I think about this idea of being a witness to the world around me, what really is my gospel impact? It challenges me to grab my um, personal evangelism outreach tool. We handed you guys to be like, okay, let's be sure we're got a plan, there's neighbors we're trying to reach, there's people we're trying to love, we're being active about this, not just passive, we're trying to get out and, and do that and think about, really, I can think about all these things, but here at the end of the day is what it is. If I'm living so much in the grace, if I'm living out Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, where I'm coming to God and I'm finding abundant pardon and grace, then I'm going to want to just pour that in the lives of other people and watch God use it for his glory in awesome ways. So how are you doing? How's your witness? How's your job performance going? And I think from the life of Paul, there's a lot to learn and a lot to apply. And so let's just take a minute right now and pray and ask for God's help. Father, we do thank you for um, the example of the Apostle Paul. And God, I'm challenged by it. Father, is really the manner of my life, is it such that I expect opposition and when it comes, Father, I'm finding my comfort and joy and peace and security in you. Father, am I, am I striving to live a blameless life? Do I have a regular habit of confessing and forsaking and repenting of sin to you and to other people? Am I really striving for that blamelessness, God? Do I really value souls more than I value my own comfort? Father, um, am I rejoicing over my gospel impact? Do I have a gospel impact? Lord, I, I pray, just pray for your help in all of us. And uh, it's not us that does it, it's you that stirs it in us, and I believe you're doing a work in our day. I believe you're doing a work in our church that's gonna impact our city. That, Father, when we really get fired up to live on mission, Lord, you're gonna do incredible things. And the gospel, we'll, we'll be rejoicing time and time again in baptism waters and testimonies and stories about how you've had an impact with the gospel through us. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Redemption. You are loved.